1: If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Alison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast, Thank you so much for listening. Later on.
0: Hi, this is Basic Folk, where we have podcasts, with honest conversations and folk musicians. What's happening to me? Conjunctions. Yeah. (laughs) Why is this so hard? Okay, welcome to Basic Folk where we have, welcome to Basic Folk where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm Cindy Howes, and I've had too many edibles, apparently. <laughs> Not right now, but like in the past. In your lifetime. In my lifetime. I'm Lizzie No, and I don't know if I've had enough edibles in my lifetime. Wow. That, you coming back strong with that. We are on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Total Lylas to the Bluegrass Situation. Ugh, Total Lila. Lylas,
2: for sure. That means love you like a sis to those who did not grow up in the like AIM
0: and MySpace generation. <laughs> <laughs> we need to bring back Lila's so hard. I'm
2: working on I it. I think maybe
0: our maybe our next fundraising gift can be around Lila's. Okay,
2: good. I like that idea. Basic folk.
0: Lila's We are a listener supported podcast, so if you want to make a contribution, you're always welcome to do so at basicfolk.com slash donate. You can also go to our shop. Get a handmade basic folk beanie, they are crafted with love from my mom to your little head. You can also sign up for our newsletter one of these days I'm gonna send a newsletter out uh, at the website basicfolk.com. dot com or you can follow us Facebook or Instagram at basic folk pod Lizzie no on all social media platforms That's me, Lizzie no, or handsome Lizzie on Twitter
2: uh handsome Lizzie. Is dead. That's true. Okay, so my handle is Lizzie. No, is dead, but my name is Handsome Lizzie, and we don't have time to get into it.
0: Oh, really? <laughs> Open a can of worms here. Didn't mean to, guys. I got hacked. Uh, I've been hacked. Before we get into our guest today, I'm excited. I love this guy's music, Brian Dunn. Obsessed, uh, Lizzie. What's going on with you? Okay,
2: I am reporting live from my sister's wedding week as we are recording this, my sister is about 24 hours away from being a married woman. I'm out here in Southern California. And just before we started recording, Cindy was like, maybe trying to scare me by saying, like, it's going to be great. (laughs) Plenty of things will go wrong at the wedding. And that's what you'll probably focus on. And I was like, you know what, that may be true of some people, but it's actually not true of me. And you know why? Because I'm a touring musician. I used to be Mm. like a super control freak. But once you tour, like on an indie DIY basis, there are so many things that randomly go wrong that you could never have expected, that it really gives you a sense of acceptance. Like the number of times I've booked a tour. Like early in my career, I would book a tour and then sometimes I would show up and like not only did I not have any fans there, but like the venue maybe forgot I was coming or like Whoa. no one was there to do sound like and then you just have to roll with it and like make the most of it. So I really have high hopes for my sister's wedding because I'm sure that at the very least, like everyone knows that it's happening. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> If you're setting the bar that low, I think you're going to be fine.
2: Another thing I'm excited about for my sister's wedding is that um, my partner and I are performing a song by Basic Folk alum Anais Mitchell, and I don't want anyone Mm. to get ideas. I don't play a lot of weddings. It's really, like, not my bag, but for my sister, you know, one last rodeo. Are you going to put a secret message
0: in there that's like, if you want to back out at the last minute, I will drive the getaway car. I wasn't planning to, but that's a really sweet sentiment. It's a very, like, Christina Yang, Meredith Grey. 100%.
2: You are yeah. such a Gray's head. I love it.
0: Yeah. So I stopped watching the new show. I stopped the episode before Meredith leaves. Mm. So in my mind, she's still on the show.
2: I did that with Glee. I I stopped right before I think they all, like, graduated and went to college. (laughs) It's not the same. I'm sorry to uh, make a mockery of something that's important to you.
0: (laughs) Listen, some people hold glee as high regard as I hold grace. It's true. People are so weird about
2: glee. I, I thought it was a fun show, but I don't really get... I mean, there's so much drama around it, but...
0: My God, speaking of drama, have you ever thought about what goes on in a propane tank honestly no yeah me neither but <laughs> i'm at our i'm at our house in in maine that uses propane and then I, I had this site visit from very nice man from the energy company and he was like mansplaining propane <laughs> tanks to me and i was like thinking in my head while he's talking i was like Is it really mansplaining if, like, I don't know what he's talking about? No, I think that's just explaining. But also, like, I don't care.
2: (laughs) Oh, no. Then it's back into mansplaining.
0: I didn't ask for this. I'm not curious. I don't. (laughs) I'm not taking in what you're saying. I just want you to stop. That's definitely mansplaining. I I
2: wonder if the Webby Awards give out a distinction for... The wildest segue in podcasts, because oh, that little that connection, connection might have might have <laughs> been a nominee.
0: Well, it just happened to me today, so it was
2: top of mind. Do you have more home ownership anecdotes, or can I share uh, music news that I have?
0: <sighs> oh, uh, you know, I think if you're on the phone with somebody trying to get customer service for your house, and they act like they don't want to help you, just go. Just keep going with it. It feels mm. uncomfortable, but they can help you and even if they don't want to. Yeah. And don't feel like you have to make any jokes to them to try to make them feel <laughs> like they should want to talk to you. Okay. It's their job. Thanks, Cindy. <laughs> yep. Um
2: at the time that you're listening to this, dear listener, I, Lizzie No, have a new song out in the world, but yes, there is a compilation album called Warriors 2 that benefits EndoFound. Um, it's the foundation that donates money to research and awareness around endometriosis. I put mm. a brand new original song on this compilation, and there are some amazing femme and female artists on this album, like AJ Lee and Blue Summit. Um, Jessica Lee Mayfield. Ah, um, oh, great. Yeah, it's a cool album, and you should go buy it. Search Endo Found Warriors, and you can buy the album. Should I introduce our guest? Yes, wait.
0: This, uh, okay, yes.
2: Please introduce the guest. Okay. I am feeling hashtag blessed and hashtag grateful to be sharing today's interview with our listeners. Drumroll, please.
0: Bada, ba bada, ba.
2: Brian Dunn, yeah, um, is one of my dearest pals in the music biz, not to mention one of my favorite songwriters working today. Brian's songs are always clever and sincere, dark but fun honest and imaginative. He's got away with words, he's got a killer voice, and he's got big time rock star vibes. Um, these are a few of the reasons why his new album, Loser on the Ropes, his Kill Rockstars debut, is earning this indie rocker critical acclaim and a ton of new fans. Brian is a New York born musician who knew he wanted to be a singer songwriter from the first time he saw Bruce Springsteen on television. After graduating from Berkeley College of Music, fancy, um, Brian started making <laughs> Brian started making records and figuring out his sound. He's become a stalwart in the New York music scene, both with his own solo records and as a member of the super silly super group Fantastic Cat. Shout out to his bandmate and basic folk alum, Anthony Diamato um in twenty twenty two Brian got word that a live recording of his song "New Tattoo," which had been recorded during a sound check in twenty eighteen was climbing the charts in the Netherlands um His unexpected European star turn has not gone to this working artist 's head one bit. in fact, he has delved even deeper into themes of failure and humility in his recent songs,
0: very popular in the Netherlands so popular in those the Netherlands. topics
2: true yeah true superstar in the netherlands um (laughs) but what keeps people coming back to brian's music is his hopeful spirit in spite of all the darkness it's such a great interview i love getting to interview people that i don't know but there's also a special magic to um finally getting to talk in depth with a good friend and like ask them those like deep journalistic Mm. questions so it's a really fun conversation
0: all right we're going to take a listen to one of brian's songs Here's sometime after this, and then we'll get to our conversation between Lizzie Noh and Brian Dunn on Basic Folk.
1: In a daydream you had made arrangements for Pretty flowers late after the massacre You woke in a star, the start to death The holy ghost the town is tangled in a total mess As the Sam Shepard rang the early morning bells, an email from the grave I hope this message finds you well If there was ever any lingering doubt, well, kid, just look at where we are right now But on the precipice, sometime after this We'll watch the changing tides arrive, this false self-righteousness Where the truth is laid just up the stairs.
2: I will meet you
1: there. Brian Dunn. Welcome no. to
2: Basic Folk. We have no time for pleasantries. <laughs> Go back in time. When did you realize that you could sing?
1: Uh that's a good question. Um I don't know. I don't I don't remember. I just feel like singing is not one of the things I've really ever thought about. What? Um yeah, I don't know. I I like it's a, your job. Yeah. That part of it I've I've I don't know. I get more in my head about the guitar playing or songwriting mm-hmm. aspect. The singing part, I don't know. Yeah, sorry to start. Sorry to start with, <laughs> to start with <laughs> such an ambivalent answer. Yeah, no singing. I just felt like I don't want to say it came natural because I actually screwed up my voice pretty bad when I was in my early twenties and had to like get surgery and stuff. You had surgery? Yeah, I had a, like a, a hemorrhaging polyp and I was like bleeding and they were like, "You have to." And I was like, "But what if I'm just raspy now?" And no, they were like, no 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 no, "No, no, 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 you're gonna." Um. But basically, what I learned is like. Don't think about it. I was thinking about it. Yes. You know, I was I was trying to sound a certain way that I didn't sound, but uh, yeah, the singing part I kind of just, I don't know, I just pull from my stomach, I guess. Pull
2: from your stomach. Okay. What was your first instrument?
1: Uh, I I picked up the guitar when I was five. I (gasps) begged for guitar lessons. Yes, I was I was cute.
2: (laughs) Do we have any photos that we could share on the? Really state? Yes,
1: unfortunately, oh. it was well-documented youth for me. Oh my gosh,
2: so cute. Do you remember like your early days of performing your own songs? What was the first time you were like, this is something I wrote. I wrote the guitar part. I wrote this melody like this is my little thing and I'm going to share it.
1: Uh, I want to say I probably played a song of my own, probably very cringeworthy at like the talent show in cute. high school or maybe even middle school. Um, I definitely like played open mics and like played covers and stuff. There was um, right. there was like a tiny little venue near where I grew up that was kind of like I don't know how to describe it. It was it was called Boodle's Opera House and it was in Chester, New York. Chester. Yeah, and um, it was a cool enough spot. Like I saw Levan there yeah. when I was uh, a kid and stuff. Um, and they had like an open mic on Sunday nights, and my parents would take me and I would perform. I, you know, I. I hope to God none of that ever surfaces, because.
2: <laughs> I think we all. I think if you're a real artist, you have some stuff that should never see the light of day, yes. and that means that you've been taking risks.
1: <laughs> I, I think it's know. a good thing. <laughs> I don't know if like performing like a Bon Jovi song in a Hawaiian shirt is taking a risk, but I'm pretty sure like, Aww. you know, nine year old me is uh, you know, it's out there somewhere. It's on a camcorder tape somewhere. That's
2: precious. Um. Do you remember when you first? really heard bruce springsteen and like what that did to who you thought that you were
1: yeah so i i i'm not particularly we're going deep right away (laughs) yeah this is graceful Um,
2: bitch yeah
1: Yeah, i usually like for years i've sort of avoided even talking about like how my deep, deep love of Bruce, because I feel like it's scary to people. I know that. Yeah.
2: But uh, we're friends and it's time for it to come yeah. out on the
1: Yeah, Okay. <laughs> I, I'm i pretty confident. I'm not a mystical person when it comes to like music and stuff. I feel like it's craft and you got to work at it. But I'm pretty confident that I died at a Bruce Springsteen concert in the early mm. 1980s and was born reincarnated. Whoa. And um, I fell in, fell in love with Bruce was the very first thing. It's essentially the first thing I can remember. My parents My parents were like moderate Bruce Springsteen fans. They mm-hmm. had seen him once and they had a copy of The River and a copy of Live 75 to 85. And I just took to it instantly. Mm-hmm. And I I've been in love with it ever since that day, obsessively, mildly obnoxious about it. Uh
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Jersey. You can't scare me.
1: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Luckily, I have found a wonderful crew of people here who understand my affliction and um share it with me. So that's nice. Cause I thought I was gonna be alone forever.
2: <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so it's I feel like your fandom for Bruce Springsteen goes beyond just like, I love the music. I admire this person. I have a sense that you take like you have an ongoing engagement with Bruce's catalog that informs how you think about yourself as a songwriter. Can you talk about that? Like, where are you at with it now? Like, is there a particular Bruce album you're listening to a lot these days?
1: That's an excellent question, Lizzie. Um, Thank you. Very well worded. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, I I think that the things that we, you know, latch on to as musicians, the the other music, it, it's that thing where you you get something from it that's mm-hmm. brand new every time, right? And I mean, I could... I've probably listened to Born to Run like 500,000 mm-hmm. times, right? But I still find new things in it. So um, to answer your question about a specific album, I just finished that Warren Zanes book on Nebraska, so which was fascinating. And Hey, Warren
2: Zanes, we'd love to have you on the pod.
1: Yeah, great. Maybe maybe one of the best rock writers out there right now.
2: Yes, and um, a very cool guy. I played a poetry mean? event where he was part of the backing band. Oh, really? Muldoon's Picnic. And I was like, I really... Do not deserve to be here. These oh, people are really good. <laughs> you absolutely deserve
1: to be there. But, um, yeah, I, uh, I was thinking a lot about that record this past week because I'm starting to. Well, I know we haven't touched upon my latest record yet, but I'm starting okay. to crack the book back open. The mm-hmm. album came out two months ago, and that's like, that's like that weird moment where you go like, "All right, let's do this."
2: <laughs> yeah, like you mean as far as like digging into new stuff?
1: Yeah, and so I think that. Um, like an album like Nebraska what 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 always captures me about that is the internal voice of that record how he's and and he, he was essentially singing to himself and um i feel like that's a really good place to start from if you're starting mm-hmm. you you know cuz a lot of times when you when you're starting to write for a record you're asking your own self like what what am i feeling right now what do mm-hmm. i want to say and um how do i feel about human life on earth you know and i don't know is the answer right mm-hmm. now so i'm going to sort through that with probably a bunch of bad songs and then yeah. hopefully we'll get to the good ones.
2: And then you, you hone it in. Yeah. Okay, tell me about music school. What was your focus or did you have a major at Berkeley? And how do you think the way that you spent your time there influenced the musician that you are now?
1: <laughs> this is another thing I've shot away from talking about, but let's get into it. <laughs> uh, yes, I did go to the Berkeley College of Music and I did graduate from there with a degree that I have no idea where it is. But I will say this, it was, you know, uh, there's a lot of like, I don't want to say there's stigma, but uh, people like to be shy about their time at music school yeah. because one, I think people make too much of a meal about it, and two, it might, you know, infer that you're sort of like a music robot and you know s- yeah. have some sort of soulless mathematical equation working in your head that you know provides you with songs that are very linear yeah. and sort of round. Um, to I me- think we
2: can both agree that that's not you.
1: I like to think so. I hope so. To the um, listeners
2: listening, Brian is my friend and I don't think of him as a music robot and I'm genuinely interested in what you know that times, education did for you. There
1: were probably times. There was definitely some things I had to unlearn after mm-hmm. but I will say this. I think that 18 is a lot younger than it used to be and mm-hmm. I think if I'd have shown up in New York City and tried to attempt what I attempted at 21 here, yeah. um, I think I would have bottomed out in a pretty seismic way and it was really nice to go to a place uh where you could sort of fail for a couple of years yeah. in a in an environment that invited I mean listen you know it was still very competitive and felt very you were aware that you were you were being judged and mm-hmm. watched but it was a little bit safer of a of a place to to figure out what it was I wanted to say mm. um and it was good to just be around that high capacity of musicians all in the same place because it just made you kinda get your are you allowed to curse on this by the way? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It just made it. you kinda get your proverbial shit together. Yeah. Um even just by, by virtue of knowing that, you know, like you were going to class with a song and Liz Longley and Ken Yates were gonna be there and you wanted to make sure that was that was tight, you know.
2: I'm scared of those guys. Liz and Ken <laughs> Like if I'm trying to, if I'm trying to do a warm up, like I warm up to like singing along to Liz Longley records. Well, Liz The girlies I- are not doing it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like them <laughs> Well, okay, so Liz uh, Liz was a year older than me at school And, you know, you come in sort of brazen and bold And you think you've got it all figured out And I remember the very first time I realized I needed to get a lot better And it was the first time I saw yeah. Liz Longley play She played a song called When You've Got Trouble That she oh, had just written so great. It's such an amazing song And I just, I, it was one of those honest moments Where you, you're, the voice in your head is like Looking for any excuse <laughs> You have and you just don't have one. And I remember standing there in that room and being like, I don't have anything that's even kind of this good. I need to go home right now. And get started on the rest of my life. Isn't know? that such
2: a great feeling? I love when I go to a show and I'm like, I gotta go home and practice.
1: Right. I'm searching for an excuse mm-hmm. everywhere. Maybe it's the jeans. Maybe it's the lights. Maybe it's mm-hmm. the sound. Oh, the sound in this room is really good. Maybe they're just really good. Yeah. And you need to see it as as <laughs> as like lighting a fire under your ass, and you need to just go and woodshed and get better, yeah. and you know try to show up a year later and stand toe to toe with them.
2: Interestingly. Ken Yates is a basic folk alum, and he said something similar about you.
1: That is when very I sweet. asked him Hi, about Ken. Berkeley,
2: he was like, <laughs> "Brian Dunn has always had his shit together," and I was like, "I get that feeling."
1: I think that's so funny because I so don't. But um, yeah, Ken. Ken was funny because Ken, well, uh, that sort of was Ken's story. Ken was trying to be a guitar player, and mm-hmm. he's and Ken's a great finger picking guitar player, but you don't want to throw Ken a solo. He'll laugh out loud <laughs> if you go, "Ken, take a solo." And um, he had written some songs, but he was very shy about them, and we had to like essentially talk him me and this other kid Jorm, we, we felt like we had to essentially talk him into pursuing this we're like you're really good dude like you don't know it but you're really really he's good. one of
2: the people i listen to the most i think he makes the best sounding records
1: ken just teased i send all of my songs to ken and i let and he sends all his to me and we all our records are signed off on one another's mm-hmm. like he picks the tracklist thing on all of my records and i like to think I pick his <laughs> unless unless oh. we really get down to brass tacks and there's something one of us feels really strongly about. But um, I trust Ken more than I trust myself with wow. uh, judgment on songs. But it is so funny that sort of so close to the time that we left, he was still sort of unsure of his own abilities and it's sort of a testament to his own. You know, he he almost like doesn't know his own power. Mm-hmm. And I remember us just sitting in a room being like, Ken, like this is pretty serious. Yeah. He needed new jeans, though. He was wearing very baggy pants at the time.
2: (laughs) Well, those have come back around.
1: Yeah. I know. So I know (laughs) you wasn't wearing them in that way.
2: I know you didn't want to talk about Berkeley, but just to like pat myself on the back, we've now uncovered like a major through line in all of your work, which is you show up somewhere with high expectations and sort of like a complicated relationship with your own ego. And then you have to let yourself disappoint yourself and then find some friends that are going to help.
1: Yeah. You, uh, you've done the work more than I have. Um, that is, that is precisely it. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't feel good. Those moments where your ego gets destroyed, um, but that's where the good work happens. Mm-hmm. And it's also liberating, right? Cuz your yes. ego is is it everything that stands in the way of good art, you know?
2: Amen. Okay, I want to talk about selling things, which is I I read a review that said it was a criminally underrated album. <laughs> I have to agree. Um What makes a good political song? To me? In general, like as a listener, because there are a couple of really good, I think really good political songs on selling things. And I want to know, like, who do you listen to when you're trying to figure out, like, what's going on in the world today?
1: Yeah, that I I asked myself that same question. So, you know, when I first got here to New York, I was writing the sort of heartbroken Mm -hmm. 20-something songs a man writes when he doesn't know what to write about. So he writes about you know, love.
2: <laughs>
1: and I, don't get me wrong. I love
2: the pregnant pause. You write about
1: love. Yeah, I wasn't sure yeah. if we would call it that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, because I was, I was like a young, single, 20-something without a story. I quite literally remember opening my notebook and being like, well, I'm not interesting. So I guess I have to conjure up something because all I had was a career that was a non-starter at the time and... Uh, I was living in the East side of Manhattan in a room that was like, it only had a twin size bed and it. Uh-huh. it could only fit a twin size bed. And I had yeah. to leave the door open cause my body heat was too, <laughs> too I hot for I have a lyric about
2: that type of New York moment on my yeah. new album.
1: Where you're like, my body is creating too much energy mm-hmm. for this room. So we yes. need to leave the door open. Um, uh, yeah. So I, I was writing a lot of like sort of love sick mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, songs and, um, you know, I, time went by and I wanted to grow as a writer. And by the way, I, I, I'm i happily married and I will write about love anytime I get a really good idea about it. But I think that for me, just in the wide breadth of songs about love, you have to have something really interesting to say if you want to approach the topic because it's all been said, man. It really has. You got to have something new to say. And I, I don't think, not to disparage anyone who likes my early records, but I don't necessarily know if I was saying anything particularly profound about love other than like, I love you, why don't you love me back? You know, kind of stuff.
2: But you know what? People need that.
1: It's, it's a universal theme. People need theme. those things, yeah. I, I've always said I, I sort of base my songs on what would be interesting if uh, somebody sat next to you at a bar and, mm-hmm. and told you a story. Because it's fascinating what is interesting and what is not interesting.
2: Mm-hmm. Wait, can you give some examples of each? What's something you thought would be interesting in a song but wasn't? And what's something you thought would be like... Whatever in a song and turned out to be profound in
1: your own writing. Yeah. Okay. So like, it is fascinating that even after all this time, if you are sitting in a bar and somebody sidles up to you at the bar and they say, I just got dumped, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you're not going to be like, get me out of this conversation. You're probably going to be like, what happened? Yes. Right. Vice versa. I don't know why this is. And maybe I can be proven wrong. And there's definitely a couple of Warren Zevon records that discuss the topic. Health issues are so important. Yes, your health is so important. It's so essential to your life. It's yeah. all you have. Yet, I don't know why songs about health issues are not interesting. That's So true. I don't know. Obviously, there's some. There's there's the last two Warren Zevon records, mm-hmm. but he was dying. That is profoundly dying interesting. Dying is everything. But for whatever reason, when somebody like when somebody makes a record about like maybe I don't know, they had like a stomach thing. A health scare. <laughs> you're, yeah, and. I don't know why your eyes just sort of glaze over and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and, and, and it's the same reason that if somebody sidled up to you at the bar and they were like, Oh, I just have like terrible IBS. You'd be like, I don't know. It's not like, I don't
2: care.
1: It's not, you go deal with that, but it's not, I don't want to hear about I it. I feel
2: for you and we don't really
1: need to talk about it. Yeah. So I always am thinking about that. And I think one of the reasons that there's so many songs about love is that it's, it's just interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. And, when I sort of looked at my career, which had been met with like sort of a resounding, eh, you know, (laughs) I thought, okay, well, what do I want? I want to say something that's, if, if, if nobody cares, then I might as well, you know, say my truth. So to answer your initial question about like political songs, I think about this a lot because there are a lot of political songs that feel like what my friend Hess calls DNC rock, mm-hmm. which are just sort Ooh, of talk about it. Yeah. Just sort of speaking to sort of broad, you know, like liberal talking points that yes. look, I'm a communist, right? Like mm-hmm. same
2: I'm, comrade. Yeah,
1: exactly. Right.
2: But you never want to hear a political song that has too many words with syllables more than more than three syllables or that end in ION, like, you know, division,
1: <laughs> division, what a you know, word, like
2: racism, <laughs> disenfranchisement right you just don't want to hear something out of a textbook
1: yeah and i don't know why but it it just always feels to me like well that's immediately your just with that language you're preaching to the choir Mm because that's who's going to listen to it is instantly people that agree with you right i've always thought the mark of a good political song is a song that someone can listen to who's from the other side of the political Mm -hmm. aisle and doesn't know that you're necessarily not doesn't know that you're necessarily like skewering them right under their nose because I don't want I don't want it to speak in such no. broad terms that they might think I'm uh, siding with them. I don't know if I'm speaking about this well. I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I feel the mark of a good political song is if I could sing a song right in front of a Republican that skewers a Republican mm-hmm. and they can't deny that yes. I'm uh, speaking some truth, you know?
2: Yeah. I mean, you have to make it universal because I think that's what makes a good political song effective is it's actually compassionate and reaches out to people you know who does that i think like better than almost anyone these days is adeem the artist sure like a lot of their songs are pretty universal and like you tap your toe to it regardless of your political affiliation
1: yeah (laughs) adeem i wonder if their crowd is from the other side of the political aisle at all because it yeah it i always find it fascinating especially like in our very troubled times yes um where the lines are drawn and I and what what I, what I mean to say is like I'm not I'm also not trying to mince words right I'm not trying to play to the middle no but I want to write songs that are so pointed and observational that maybe someone could be tricked mm-hmm. into changing their mind yes and I don't think you do that with broad generalizations or the classic um Tony my wife always points out when we go to a when we go to sort of like a big mainstream concert there's always a song during the concert where the artist plays like a video of stock footage of just kids who look different and kids who
2: are sad and maybe they have like a little (laughs) bit of dirt on their face maybe they're like sort of waving uh like a flag
1: yeah it's bizarre and it's (laughs) always it's always to sell you like a new song yeah that's like on the new album and tony pointed out to me and and we were like does this all come from the same like like a video house (laughs) because i've been to three different shows at the beacon that all had this same sort of video play and it's what it is is it's i i agree with the broad generalizations of it i just but
2: it's knocking you over the head in a way
1: yeah and as a writer you're like well let's do one better let's say something that hasn't been said before
2: yeah i think the more specific you can get the more interesting it gets these days now Mm -hmm. that so much has been said um I want to read a quotation from you Uh around the Selling Things (laughs) release. The darkness in these new songs, Brian says, comes from writing them when he was enduring really difficult emotional and mental problems. I wanted to talk about what that felt like. Each song is a reckoning with things that eat at me personally or things that eat at me existentially. So normally when you release an album, you share all this new content and then Mm -hmm. you have a touring cycle which at least for me can be really cathartic like you get to kind of be in conversation with your audience about these difficult topics so how did you as a person like deal with not having the catharsis of touring selling things because it's a super personal and really deep album that came out in april of
1: 2020 um short answer is poorly i dealt with it poorly (laughs) um (laughs) You know, it's funny for you to read that back to me because I haven't heard that in a couple of years. And now I feel like so many people have talked about their mental health Mm -hmm. issues. At the time, I felt like I was being super candid, but I feel like and maybe maybe that's that was the goal we were all trying to achieve is like like normalizing that. Like, look, we're all struggling, you know, because now when when I hear you read that back to me, I'm almost like, yes, all songs are like. I was going to – this was driving me insane. And so I tried to make something good out of it, Mm -hmm. you know? Because that's the the positive of all songs, right, is that, like, even the saddest song in the world is a happy song because you chose to make something – Right. Writing a song is inherently an optimistic act. You're thinking, well, maybe this could be something good for somebody, Mm -hmm. right?
2: And here I am to tell the tale.
1: Right. Even the darkest sad song, it's Mm -hmm. like, well, you you survived by virtue. You're singing this song. Um But yeah, I had a real, like, you know, sort of break in my late 20s where I had spent just a lot of time in a car by myself uh, touring. And I had a lot of just just stuff that I never looked under the hood of. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that for a lot of musicians, a lot of people set out, they don't feel good. You don't feel good. But you have this idea in your head, like, but when I achieve all my goals then I will feel good. Yes. And it's weird. It didn't flare up when things were going really poorly for me. And as soon as they started kind of, I started, you know, getting some opportunities, getting tours and and started developing a following. The moment that I realized I didn't feel different, I actually kind of felt worse. Yes. It really freaked me out. And um, it wasn't wasn't anything, um, you know, like hyper dramatic. I just went through a really dark period where I had to go, you know, see a bunch of therapists and, you know, uh, I spent some time on the, the pills and, you know, kind of got my head straightened out. Mm -hmm. And ultimately I think the realization I needed to come to was like, they're not going to replace you with a smarter or more wise guy. Like it's you forever. Mm -hmm. I think when I was young, I thought that like, when you get older, you get voiced by a different character
2: nobody's coming to get you there.
1: exactly precisely <laughs> yeah like they replace yeah. you with the older version of you that knows stuff
2: i keep waiting for that
1: no it's not it's you forever yeah you know just different versions of you but it's you and um yeah i think that i had a bit of a reckoning with that sorry for that tangent but yeah no, essentially, i really
2: appreciate your being candid about that on the podcast because like Social media gives us the illusion that we know a lot about the artists that we listen to. And you can really start to feel like, you know, somebody once you've listened to their music and you kind of see what they're up to day to day on tour. Mm
1: -hmm. I think
2: that there's a lot of deeper questions that are getting missed there. So I think it's a real gift to share, like, what are what actually goes into like, what does it feel like to actually share of yourself with the world? And like, when is it not enough, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, it feels really weird, right? Because yeah. like, especially I come from a family that's very working class, and yeah. like, if my mom and dad are listening to this, I don't mean anything by this, but like, everyone needed a therapist and no one got one. Oh, you yeah. know? Oh yeah, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> I'm familiar. Yeah,
2: I've seen that movie,
1: and I don't just mean my, you know, like everyone, you know, it's all untreated. <laughs> yep. Uh, so I've I had a lot of like weird feelings about sharing that kind of stuff. I wrote a couple of essays on things I've been through. Um. And, uh, you know, I felt very naked But what I will say on the other side of that is And maybe even though it's well-worn territory That maybe the point of it is that Yeah, it doesn't feel unique to say And that made me feel very comforted Mm -hmm. Because even though, yes, a lot of albums have come out And been like, this is about my mental health crisis I'm like, fuck yeah, man Like, that's what it's about Like, we're trying to relieve ourselves of something With these songs Mm -hmm. and create some sort of catharsis out of like a dark period of time and that those are all my favorite records you know and um yeah I, I i think it's cool that now it's sort of obvious to say like yeah this these songs were born out of a darkness in my heart and yeah. i was hoping to shed some light on those
2: speaking of moments where suddenly your reality shifts and then you adjust internally. Do you remember where you were when you found out that new tattoo was charting in Europe? <laughs> How has that changed your trajectory? For our listeners, Brian had a four-year-old song. It came out in 2018. 2018 yeah. And then years later, it became a hit in the Netherlands, correct? Yes. Um, and it has led to a ton of new touring and new fans. Mm-hmm. So like, what has surprised you about your European fans? What has that done for how you're thinking about your career now
1: yeah well the answer to that question is that i was sitting right in this very spot that i'm sitting right now wow. which is in the center of my couch right here we're
2: in the room where you're it happened. in
1: the room where it happened it was very un, <laughs> uh, uh you know uneventful somebody just texted me like i think you have a hit in the netherlands and i was like fascinating how what's on What?" but uh and it's been a huge thrill to go over there and like Play big shows. I played an arena in October, which okay. I did solo acoustics. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry. solo
2: arena I'm gonna show. I'm
1: gonna give myself the uh, you know no uh, <laughs> go to my Instagram <laughs> Instagram.com backslash Brian Music <laughs> if you're using <laughs> the desktop version. Uh, no, but um, my takeaway from it is don't get in your head about the release of music. Just put good stuff out there, and it'll find an audience. Never on time, and never. Uh, you know the the three month period where you necessarily need it to, but it will find its way to people. Mm-hmm. It's very bizarre. I it happened in a very strange way. Essentially, um, a guy named Danny Vera had a radio show. Picked it up on his radio show. He himself had had a big hit song in the Netherlands, and he started playing it on his radio show. The radio station picked it up. Then a bunch of the other radio stations picked that up. It was very, it was very 1976. That's organic, yeah, right. And um. I went over and did a tour. I went over and did a bigger tour. I did mm-hmm. some support stuff and with this new record. And the thing I learned from it, because that song I wrote for selling things and then I wasn't going to put it on the record. Mm-hmm. And actually what happened was I was playing this show in Michigan and a film crew showed up to the show, to, to the mm-hmm. sound and was And they were like, hey, we'll film you playing a song. That's always great um, content, y'all. Yeah, and so I was like, "Well, I'm not going to do anything with this song," so I just I just finished it and uh, I sent it over to Sarlo, and he thought it didn't quite fit on the record. Andrew
2: Sarlo, your often collaborator. Yes,
1: he produced selling things, and uh, he didn't think it fit. I didn't think it fit, so I just played it at the sound check, and they sent me the video of it, and I thought, "Oh, that sounds pretty nice." Yeah. You know, it's always those kinds of things. Yes, and still the that song is the audio from that video.
2: Really. <laughs> That's a good, that's a, that's a, is that an exclusive?
1: Uh, yeah, I don't know if I've talked about that.
2: Basic folk exclusive.
1: Yeah, it's just like the reverb on the track is just the reverb from the hall. It's at the, yeah, um, it's a
2: great sounding record. I mean, I think that makes it very special because it sounds so immediate. It really is, what is it? Was it Ani DeFranco? You know, this is, this is a record, a record of people making music in a room. It's a, it's a, it's a great song.
1: It's one of those things. It also does beg the question. Do I need to be spending all this money on yes. my records?
2: <laughs> I didn't come here to be bullied
1: um. <laughs> yeah, no precisely i I mean listen hasn't stopped me the last two or the most i've ever the most we've ever spent on on records, so I didn't learn my lesson at all, but yeah, it's just that's the that's a song that's just a story, and it's me in a room telling that story cool and I don't know i i I think maybe that song because it was so. Free of any association. It just sort of was a story I was telling about how um, sadness manifests mm-hmm. in people. Um, I, I was amused by the idea that our generation would have uh, quarter-life and midlife crisis crises that look different than our parents, but yeah. were the same, where they might have bought a Maserati or redid the kitchen cabinets. We will get a new tattoo. Right. Um, but
2: we still don't want strings attached.
1: Yes. And we... <laughs> are not to like overanalyze cause it was just a little story song, but I think that I was getting at this idea that like we are up against the same pile of shit that every other generation is the same existential pile mm-hmm. of shit, which is you're going to get older and you're going to feel weird about it. Yep. No matter what you do, <laughs> no matter how you color your life. And no even matter, if you're so
2: successful and surrounded by friends yeah. and community, like you're going to have that, like, did I make the right choices? Right at all these checkpoints
1: and if you tell yourself you're not going to be exactly um the way that the previous generations of your family were that's fine but you're not getting out of here alive you know so it's just going to have a different color to it but Mm. it's going to be the same struggle
2: wow that's beautiful i'm going to listen to that in the car on the way home with that in mind okay (laughs) what was the first song that you wrote for loser on the ropes your latest album recently released on kill rock stars
1: Yes, very good pitch. Um, I <laughs> the very last song on the record, I had, um, but I don't think of it as the first song that I wrote because okay. I finished. Uh, that was just one of those songs that I sort of danced upon. I was like out for a jog one day. Uh, I was living up in Greenpoint, and I just got the melody in my head. I wrote it down, and I thought, "Oh, that would be a that's going to be the last song on my next record." Oh, nice! But it was almost like writing the epilogue to mm-hmm. the book you haven't written yet. To me, the first song that I wrote was Rockaway, Mm -hmm. which is the third song on the record. Um, And while I don't like to think of the record as a pandemic record, that's a song that's definitely colored by the existential uh, struggle that was the early pandemic, which is what is happening? What is my purpose? Have all the things I've been working for been turned to dust overnight and what is this dystopian time that I'm living through? But I tried to write it in such a way that it wasn't necessarily just about the pandemic. Rather, it was about disillusionment.
2: Yes. Um, my mom's from Rockaway and I feel like the vibe is very Rockaway.
1: Thank you. I um, mean, there's like
2: a sort of scrappy hopefulness yeah. to it. Um, okay. So my stepson Ames, Hi, Amesy, has a question for hi, you. He said, How do you produce your music? How do you get it all set up? So, I would like for you to do maybe like a mini song exploder, not to like steal tricks from other podcasts. Oh, I love this. But, like, can you walk (laughs) us through Rockaway? Like, how would you explain to Ames how you went from I have an idea to I have a demo to I have a song to like I have a full recorded song?
1: Yes, this rules. Let's get into it. Great. This is for you, Ames. Okay. (laughs) Um, I wrote Rockaway. I went to it was it wasn't just like i actually was at rockaway when i got mm-hmm. the idea i was standing on the beach it was early may it was like a unseasonably warm day and I, the first thing that dawned on me was uh, uh sunbathers in surgical masks right and i was like well that's that's that wild was. right and it was the first thing that you know, I'm again. I I can I can sort of be a false optimist at times, and I I was definitely one of those people in March and April that was like, "We'll get through, well. This will just be just hunker down
2: for a. This will be weeks. all right."
1: Yeah, like they called me the album. The last album came out on April 10th, and I they were like, you know, my manager called me and was like, "Do we want to delay?" And I was like, "No, no, 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 no. We'll, we'll, this will be we'll be fine." Um, and it was the first time it truly dawned on me that things were going to be different for a very long time, and we would be different emotionally mm. for a long time, and. Uh, so I had the idea that I wanted to write a song about this sort of real emotional crisis against the sunny Mm -hmm. backdrop of Rockaway beach, which is a place that I love, um, and feel very like close to. Yes. Um, so I came home and I sat on my couch and I wrote the song, um, late at night and I wrote, I, the first thought I had is, was, is this too many verses? Because I think it's five verses, Mm -hmm. uh, and four different choruses, like one. Three of the choruses are the same, but there's And like then there's a, an alt yeah, chorus. Yeah, there's an alt chorus.
2: By the way, like Ames cover your ears. I spent my entire twenties scaring the hose by being like <laughs> too depressed and weird. And that <laughs> little chorus really like speaks to my heart. Oh,
1: thank you. <laughs> like yeah. I find
2: you very attractive and I feel that I'm too weird and dark to be around you and I'm gonna kind of yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. gonna Yes. I'll see myself to the door.
1: <laughs> I don't think yeah, I'm going to ruin this if I tell you what it is actually going on in my head.
2: I don't think you want to know <laughs> me, but I would love to know you. <laughs> right.
1: Exactly. That's exactly what I was getting at. Yeah. And um I came home and I demoed it up and I, I had a lot of time on my hands because of the aforementioned pandemic. So mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to cut any of this. I'm going yes. to write it all up and demo it all up like with with all the arrangements. Mm-hmm. So the original demo has the a very similar drum groove it has mm-hmm. you know questionable synth horns and so like you
2: programmed all of these i programmed all of it instruments.
1: instruments and then i went and i remember specifically saying uh to tony who had just walked in the room i said i've been working on this song for 48 straight hours and i'm pretty sure i hate it so then i just bounced it and i sent it to ken okay and ken hit me back and he was like i love it mm-hmm. and which ken doesn't really say often he usually goes like well, yeah, it's kind of this or it's kind of that and maybe this could be tightened up mm-hmm. and I usually take his word at as the gospel. Yes. Um and do those things and send it back to him. But he was like, "I love it." And I I wrote I probably still have the email where I'm like, "Are you sure?" cuz I'm pretty sure this is insane. This yes. is like an insane <laughs> run-on sentence about all the thoughts in my head. And uh yeah, okay. So, I have this demo and uh Ken says he loves it and so that that feels like a stronger opinion than my own so i'm this is now the first song that i've written for the record um i sit on it for a while and you know like you'll you know how it is you sort of build a list of songs Mm -hmm. and as you write more and more songs you know things get thrown out and taken away but this song just kind of it kept staying in there
2: i can't relate because i never am able to write enough songs to be i maybe will cut like one song every
1: record Really?
2: I mean, I, I'll I'll spend years writing just one song. Our
1: buddy Matt Sušić is, is is like that yeah. too, and I I always admire that sort mm-hmm. of like um, that sort of. These are the ideas I'm going in with, and we're going to just make them yes. perfect. Because I'm <laughs> I'm a I sort of like write a, a couple hundred songs and whittle it down, um, and most of them are are real bad, you know. Cool. Can't wait and, to dig
2: into those archives. Yeah, no,
1: I like I've, I.
2: hope I outlive you, so then yeah. I can release them posthumously. No, yeah, <laughs> I,
1: like my my first wish in my will would be like burn all the voices. Yes. Uh, who was it
2: that got that tattoo? Was uh,
1: Anderson Park. Yes, has that tattoo right? <laughs> Do not yeah, release yeah,
2: yeah. any posthumous albums. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No, I totally felt <laughs> that. Uh, yeah, so okay, so I had the demo, and then we had this mystifying experience, which I went down to the studio in uh, Athens, Georgia. I worked with Drew Vandenberg, who. Mm-hmm produced uh the last two Faye Webster records that I really Beautiful. liked. Um so I wanted to work with him and his main rule was I don't want any demos. Like I don't I want you to come in and play the song for the band. Mm-hmm. Which is it was an excellent choice for me because it's infuriating because I'm a I'm a total control freak and I will Ooh. run away with every every part that everybody's playing. So then I was left with the odd uh, Conundrum, which was like, I want this song to have the same arrangement as the demo, because I feel like the song sort of hinges on the arrangement. But if I do that, I'm going to have to use my words. Uh, So I sort of talked everybody through the, forgive me for using the word, the vibes of everything. And we landed on something that sounds oddly close to my demo, but we got there by sort of explanation of intention. Um, Wow yes yeah so
2: conversation worked
1: i guess so i was really frustrating (laughs) i really every turn i wanted to be like can i just play you the demo Mm -hmm. and he would and drew would just be like no you can't play the demo you have to explain it so uh we cut it um we mixed it and mastered it and um it was mastered by sarah register who's done my last couple records and yeah, that song, it's funny, I, I wasn't sure how that song would be received, but I feel like it's sort of emerged as one of the tracks that, we didn't put it out as a single or anything, but it's emerged as a track that people sort of um, have referenced, every every review that's come mm-hmm. out has talked about that song.
2: Yeah, it's a hit.
1: Thank you. It's a very long hit. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I it's sort of, I was thinking about a, a specific song that I love, it doesn't sound a lot like the song, but um, there's a song called Harmony Hall by Vampire Weekend, yeah. and what I love about Harmony Hall is that it's sort of a, a song about a dystopian uh existential nightmare. Mm-hmm. But it's set against the backdrop of this very sunny music. And to me, that is uh that almost that juxtaposition almost makes it feel more harrowing, like when in a movie when somebody f- finds a dead body in the middle of the day. Yeah. You know? Or um like did you see um what's the Florence Pugh movie, the Midsummer, yeah, Midsummer. Oh, Jeez. yeah, I don't know scary. Escape my. But the fact that like it's all in broad daylight makes yes. it more makes it more terrifying. And it's in this
2: like minimalist, Scandi, elegant
1: environment yes. that yeah. like
2: is aspirational for a lot of people. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. So I felt like that was the type of song I wanted to write because that was how it felt during that time. Like how can how can I be so confused and deeply uh, disturbed on this beautiful day? You know,
2: Mm -hmm. Um, let's talk about optimist. Like, are you naturally optimistic? How does your engagement with philosophy and philosophers impact your outlook? Mm -hmm. How do you stay hopeful? What's going on in that song?
1: Well, Optimist featuring Lizzie No by the oh way. my God, who? The only the only feature on the album.
2: Voice of a generation, <laughs> some are calling.
1: <laughs> yeah, this podcast is an inside job. Yeah. You guys should know. Um, So Optimus is the last song I wrote for the record and I'm sort of, I was like sort of looking for a song that summed everything up. Like what, what was I getting at with mm-hmm. this? Which is that I think the album is sort of a chronicle of all these different personalities I've tried on over mm-hmm. the years. And to land back on I think I'm just an optimist was so disappointing because it's so basic.
2: (laughs) Not in 2023.
1: Well, that's what, and that was sort of what I was trying to work through in the song, which is I think that all of this was just because I'm a man standing in front of a bunch of a beautiful day trying to feel good about it, but I'm terrible at it. I keep falling off for like years at a time. I forget that I'm an optimist and it was also sort of noting that optimism feels like it has diminishing returns and it gets harder each year. You know, mm. it gets harder to get back on the horse and the things that used to, you know, pick up your spirits don't. So I, I was sort of... The song sort of chronicles this very strange time where it's almost funny, where you look in the mirror and you're like, huh, really? After all those hats and all those you're personalities... still a
2: hopeful... Dude, yeah,
1: and it's Mm -hmm. and sort of what I was getting at by naming the sort of dark philosophers was not to like sort of get into armchair, you know, 101 philosophy in whatever Nietzsche and Schopenhauer mean to you, but rather that
2: on a different podcast, yeah,
1: (laughs) rather just sort of like to illustrate the point that, like, yeah, I thought I was a dark philosopher, a cynic at Mm -hmm. some points, and all it made me was insufferable to be around. I think the truth is. At my core, I'm trying to just feel good about this life that we've been given, but sometimes I feel like I know too much mm-hmm. or I've seen too much, and it's very hard to continue to be a fighting optimist. But that's what that song's about.
2: Right. And I think that kind of goes back to your earlier point about how sometimes what you think is going to be boring actually turns out to be profound and you right. know, vice versa, because- it would never occur to me to write a song about like being optimistic because it's like, ugh. right. But it's actually a really um, nuanced song, sonically and
1: lyrically. Thank you. I when I finished it, you know how when you some songs you finish and you go that's a good track three or that's a good mm-hmm. track six or whatever. And some songs you finish and you go, I don't even know if that's good, but I know that's what I want to say. Yeah. And I feel so strongly about that that I'm willing to stand with this song whether people like it or not Mm -hmm. i know that that is what that is what i've been trying to say on this entire record Mm -hmm. is what have i learned what am i trying to do and what i'm trying to do is figure out how to feel good again after all that we've been through as Mm a nation as a globe also as a person and even down to my own personal bullshit in this career that we call music you know which you know, send you through the ringer and back again.
2: Yeah, I, for the, for the listeners, I just rolled my eyes deeply (laughs) with recognition and uh, resignation. Would you say that this album has a particular point of view on death?
1: Yeah, um, I think some songs uh, qualify it as relief. Yes. Um, but yes, there's there's a lot of bratty energy coming from those particular songs, though. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, um, I think that... So Jackson Brown is, to me, one of my favorite writers. And, mm-hmm. and that, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that um, by listening to one of my songs. But I think that Jackson Brown is... I don't know if I'd use the were underrated but rather like misunderstood maybe because I feel like Jackson Brown is sometimes associated with like 70s California soft rock, almost like Eagles adjacent. Chill dad vibes. Yes. And I think that Jackson Brown writes about death and um, existence better than just about any of Mm -hmm. his peers. And album's like Late for the Sky and a song like um, Before the Deluge, which is Mm -hmm. a song that I was sort of using as a model throughout this record because it's a song – About this sort of dystopian nightmare, but it's written in beautiful terms where it doesn't feel right, because that was that was the challenge for all writers making writing a record between 2020 and 2022, which is how do we write about current times without making it about the pandemic? Yeah, you know. And because was, it
2: can turn people off.
1: Right. Or it just dates your record. Like, think about how many bios you're reading right now when you get pitched artists for this podcast that are like, this is a pandemic record and, you know, it was written in isolation yep. and lockdown. Believe it or not, they sent tracks back and forth. Y- you're not going to believe this, but the, the producer and the artist actually had to email yeah. back and forth. <laughs> and you just like, you see the word lockdown and you like, your your brain is immediately like just yeah. zones out. But you also want to write about current times the same way our favorite songwriters wrote about Vietnam when Vietnam was happening or wrote about the Reagan years when the Reagan years were happening. And I was thinking about songs like Dr. My Eyes, which Mm -hmm. are about, you know, Vietnam, but they're not about Vietnam. They're not like uh, that kind of um, sort of like just sort of specific aesthetic. He's writing about this. And I
2: feel like, sorry to interrupt you, but like back to talking about what makes a good political song not boring. What's going on, you know, to me Marvin Gaye is the greatest American artist right. ever and what's going on is the political song to me. Exactly. That song hinges on talk to me. Right. It's not just picket lines, picket signs. It's like we've lost the ability to communicate. We've lost the ability to look one another in the eye and that's the bigger issue.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like, we
2: don't know what's real anymore, and we don't know each other anymore. Right. It could be written today, it could be written 50 years from now.
1: And that, is, I mean, that is that line you dance on when writing about uh, current times and politics, mm-hmm. is like, where do you cross over into broad colloquialisms, where you're saying, like, love is love, yeah. and, you know... Love all, wins. Yeah, and, and then <laughs> you're just sort of, you're just a home goods wall stencil, you know? <laughs> uh But you also, I don't want to speak in such specifics that the album feels like, Oh, the imagery is just masks and, yeah. uh, vaccines and, you know, things like that. So I, I was thinking about all of that because we had nothing but time to think.
2: That's crazy. Oh my gosh. Remember when we had like just become friends and we ran into each other at the vaccination line. Yes. <laughs> this is like a New York gas podcast. Yeah.
1: We ran into each other at CVS at getting CBS, our second like, shot. Oh
2: my God. It's my new friend, Brian Dunn getting vaccinated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I have oh. other questions about this album, but I have, I'm going to skip them because there are some deep things I want to talk about regarding friendship. So Fantastic Cat, it's sure. your it's your super group.
1: Something Cat, of a super group is what we call it. It's a super
2: group. I, I have seen like trustworthy news outlets call it a super That's group. That's
1: true. We have tricked two very trustworthy news outlets to call us a super group. By saying that we are something of a supergroup and seeing what they do. That's why I keep saying I'm the voice
2: of a generation. I'm the next (laughs) Bob Dylan. Hell yeah. It Um, works. So are there sides of yourself that show up in Fantastic Cat that you don't really get to shine a light on in your Brian Dunn solo life?
1: Absolutely. Fantastic Cat is very silly. And Mm -hmm. I'm I I, you know, embrace silliness on my records, but Fantastic Cat is very silly super silly yeah i think that's what it is for all of us Mm -hmm. uh and you know it's liberating because a band can hold more what am i trying to say it can carry more like you can take chances Mm -hmm. because when your name is attached to something you you it sort of beckons the question who is brian dunn yes what is he saying and with fantastic hat it's what is Fantastic Cat. And, and you're Fantastic literally Cat, wearing masks. Yes, yes. That's, that, that's true too. <laughs> but it also, you're always thinking as a, as a solo artist, what if this song is the first and last song somebody hears by me? Oh, yeah. And with the band, it's kind of, it's an entire aesthetic philosophy. Mm-hmm. So it can hold more bizarre excursions into the absurd.
2: Yes. Who do you think is the audience? For Fantastic Cat. Oh, they're how- you're gonna say,
1: who do you think is the best one? Well, <laughs> who is the best one? Uh, well, uh, Don. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say Don as well. Um, Who do I think is the audience for Fantastic Cat? Well, it's a combination of the four of us. By the way, Fantastic Cat is myself, Don DeLego, Anthony D'Amato, Basic folk alum, basic vocal and Alum, and Mike Montali of Hollis Brown. And the audience is interesting because it's a combination of the four of our fan bases, mm-hmm. but also we've sort of developed our own zany little fan base. Mm-hmm. Um, we put out a record last summer and we all wear velvet suits and we play sort of, uh, bizarro folk rock music. Mm-hmm. That's sort of like, I like to think of it sounding like maybe a classic rock record that were, something was wrong with the record player or something. Yeah. Um, that's very funny. Yeah. So that's, and we're, we're hard at work on album two and we're trying to like, uh, extend upon that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's been really, it's kind of like what we were talking about with the new tattoo song, which mm-hmm. is like the best things that have come to me in my career are when I sort of let go a little bit. Cause mm-hmm. I'm a control freak and I, I have a tendency to squeeze things too tight and I have a lot of songs about it. Um, and that was sort of my intention with this most recent record, "Loser on the Ropes," which is to say, like, if I'm on my back, if I'm already lost, mm-hmm. then fuck it, let's let's be honest, let's let's speak, you know? Yeah. And um, I like to think that I was able to conjure up that spirit a little bit, but with Fantastic Cat, I can just hold it looser. Um, you can take a few more chances. I let things in that I normally don't let in. There's, you know. There's definitely songs I've written for the band that have jokes in them that yeah. I probably would have edited out of solo material. But I'm like, I think the band can hold this joke.
2: Yes. You know? And and I feel like the agreement of Fantastic Cat is commit to the bit.
1: Commit to the bit.
2: And one another. Yes. It's, it's kind of, it's moving to see live. Um, speaking of friends, you and Tony have a lot of queer friends. Yeah. And... You are on Kill Rock Stars, which to me is a, like a queer institution. Mm-hmm. Do you find the word ally useful? Do you think of yourself as an ally? Uh, what does that look like in your life?
1: Yeah, I do think of myself as an ally, but I also am very, I, I, I always want to make sure that I'm not, you know, sort of like occupying space that isn't mine to occupy. Mm. Um, I'm super flattered that I get to sit at the Kill Rockstars lunch table um, and I just, I try to be super respectful of the space I take up over there because Kill Rockstars does sign predominantly queer artists mm-hmm. and I am, uh, a cisgendered man and, um, A
2: diversity hire, some would say. <laughs> I can say it. I can say it.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely normie passing, you know, um. <laughs>
2: like in 30 rock when Jenna and her boo are normaling yeah
1: <laughs> yeah totally i guess that's us yeah i but i you know it's it's something that i think is really important and and just something like for instance kill rock stars i had this really strange situation where i was almost signed by a very mainstream nashville label oh boy and um i had no reason to not sign uh and it was a good deal and it was i had i had lawyers mm-hmm. look at it and it was a good deal, but I had—I just knew I-, I felt like they wouldn't understand me. Mm-hmm. you know. I felt like there was a potentially a backwards hat in my future. Yeah. And um, I walked and I ran as hard as I could in the other direction. And I reached out to Kill Rockstars. And um, instantly they were like, I could feel that Slim and Portia were kind of like, well, why would you want to be over here? Right. And I sort of... You know, just like anyone in in a bit of a crisis, I was sort of like, I don't know. I just want to. I, this is this is where I belong. Right. Uh, and um, Slim took a real shine to me, and uh, you know, believed in my songs. And and but I was surprised that they signed me for sure.
2: Well, I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you but can. like knowing you as a friend and and also as an artist, I feel that, and I feel this for myself too. Whether or not you identify as LGBT plus, Um, queer spaces, I think, are more understanding of emotional nuance, um, the different identities that each one of us has, Mm -hmm. the different facets of people's personalities. Like Complexity is welcome and celebrated, and Mm -hmm. I feel like you have an instinctive sense of that. And it can be harder to be emotionally mature and open in a straight dominant space, especially as a man. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but like there's an expectation for like male guy with a guitar, you know, man with a guitar that maybe you can kind of get around in a queer space. Does that feel true?
1: I think absolutely. And I think you said it really well. And, um, I would just add to it. I've always, I've always wanted to make music for people who felt like they weren't insiders, you know? Uh, and, uh, Because even though, you know, I know that I have a very, I look like just like basically I did. And I accept that, I own a mirror.
2: You are a special (laughs) snowflake. Wait, was that the review that you got? A fantastic cat that like, even the one guy with a normal, like a banker haircut is really
1: good. Am I making myself- There was actually an insane YouTube comment (laughs) that, I don't want to like put the guy totally on blast, but he basically like, it it was essentially something of the, to the vibe of like, um, bros like you and me don't get enough respect. And uh, and I just like showed it to Tony, and I was supposed to get a haircut that day. And I was like, "Tony, I'm not going to get this haircut." No. She was like, "Don't let this send you on a journey." No. And I was like, "I don't. This is really, this is really upsetting me that this this man thinks he enough. and I are one in the same." <laughs> no, um, but I've I've just I've always felt like I wanted to make, I wanted my songs to be for people who just felt misunderstood, mm-hmm. and so perhaps that's a reason why I I have been drawn to, uh those types of spaces but yeah realistically I just I don't know I just go follow my nose and that's where it's led me um, and now being on a predominantly queer label or I, I don't know if they, they would call themselves a predominantly queer label but I would say at least 90% of the acts mm-hmm. on sure. kill rock stars identify as queer I just want to be uh, a good ally and be helpful and not a pain in the ass
2: <laughs> what a beautiful sentiment um do you have time for a lightning round? It'll I'd be great. I got nothing to do. Okay. Which of the following is most important to you in a song? Rhythm, chords and chord progressions, lyrics, or melody? Lyrics. What is your favorite type of pie?
1: Uh, apple. You Sorry. are a normie. You are I know. a normie. Okay. I well, As soon as it left my <laughs> mouth... I was like, oh, I could have said something so much better. I also love strawberry rhubarb. Do I get any credit for that? Strawberry
2: rhubarb is so good. Okay. What is your favorite brand of shoe?
1: Uh, I am enjoying a Red Wing Iron Ranger right Mm -hmm. now. I have two pairs.
2: What is the best time of day to write a song? Five o'clock. AM or PM? PM. What is the best age to be? Ooh, Mm, 29. 29. What is your pre-show drink?
1: Um, if it's a solo show, I like a bottle of wine, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a bottle, a whole bottle of wine, a glass of wine, Okay, but maybe a bottle of wine. Uh, (laughs) and if it's, um, if it's a band show, I tend to go for a tequila. Mm
2: -hmm. What is your post-show drink?
1: Um, a nice cool down beer. Mm
2: -hmm. What would you be doing with your life if you were not a musician?
1: Uh, probably something equally irresponsible, like being a comedian or I don't know, a mime or something. I don't think I would exist in a, I think I'd be the worst employee ever.
2: I've played in your band. That might be true. (laughs) Um, what in 10 words or fewer, what does success mean to you? Uh,
1: well, that's changed a lot over the years and I think about it a lot, but, uh, success means having full artistic autonomy.
2: And finally, what is your cat, Sid's, favorite genre of music?
1: Um, silence. (laughs)
2: Oh. And there he is sleeping right now like a little angel. Brian Dunn has just released a monster album, Loser on the Ropes. I cannot tell our listeners strongly enough to buy this album on vinyl, stream it, share it with a friend. Um, Thank you, my dear friend, Brian, for being my guest on Basic Folk.
1: Thank you for having me, Lizzie. You're the best.
2: No, you're the best.
1: No, you're really good at this.
2: Thanks. Did did we get that in the recording?
1: (laughs) Yep, I got it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Woo! This episode of Basic Folk was produced by Sarah Wardrop. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Our music is produced by Alex Stanton. You can find all of our episodes wherever you get podcasts. You can search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk. Or you can check out our website. Could you tell that was me or did you think it was AI? I could tell me. that was you. I, I I would know your voice anywhere. Basicfolk.com is our website. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. You are spectacular. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.